Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Amen, church. Would you mind remaining standing with me as we ask that God would truly be our portion? Uh, I know in a crowd this size, there are anxieties, there are worries, there are cares, there are concerns. But in God and in God alone, our, stole, our souls can truly be stilled. Would you join me in praying to him right now? God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that in a tumultuous world where seasons of life take us by surprise, where things do not go as we expected that they would go, that you are nevertheless in control, that you are good that you have sent your son and you have given us promises in your word which are true and are, are sealed, God, by the, the resurrection of Christ. And for those who are in Christ by faith, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And Lord, we, we confess this morning that we often take our eyes off of Jesus and off of the hope and the assurance that we have in him and, and place our eyes on lesser things. So God, I pray today that in the hearing of your word and the singing of these songs that you would refresh hearts and souls, that you would allow us to be still before you uh, and God to, to take to heart the promises of the gospel that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Paul and Jesse and worship team for leading us today. I want to invite you, um, if you're new to North Roanoke, we generally work our way through books of the Bible, and we are working through the book of Esther right now. Um, to find Esther, open to the book of Psalms, which is in the middle, basically, of your Bible, and then just start turning backward towards Genesis until you find Esther. I, I want to preach to you this morning on the true king. As we read Esther, there's the king in the text, and then there's the king behind the text, who is the true king, the king who is sovereign and ruler and Lord over all things. And I, I want to show you today that, our, that the true King, Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, is Lord over slights and stands and chances. And hopefully that's going to make a little more sense as we work through this story together. So we're going to see uh, that God is in control even when life seems to be spinning out of control. Even though we live in a dark and hostile world where people sometimes conceal their identity uh, or their motives, God, sometimes when we conceal our identity in Christ and we compromise in our walk with Him, there is no situation that God can't turn around for His glory and the saving good of His people. So we'll start in chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Would you hear with me the Word of God? In those days... As Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than, that's just a great name by the way, Big Than, that needs to be like a superhero or something. Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. 
When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. What I want to show you from this portion of the story in the book of Esther is that as believers, as the people of God, we need to trust that God is sovereign, He's Lord, He's in control over recognition and rewards. God is in control over recognition and rewards. Do you know at some point in just about everyone's life, a crisis will come between what seems fair to you and what actually happens to you. It, it'll happen in everybody's life. You'll, you'll miss that promotion. You'll miss out on the house that you wanted to buy and you put in the best offer, but for some reason, somebody else got it. It, it happens in high school award banquets in the senior year, every year. Somebody got the scholarship that really shouldn't have got it, but they were the teacher's kid. It, it happens on ball fields, in rec clubs, when coaches play politics rather than playing the game. It happens when children face unexpected challenges and parents don't understand why, why my son or, or my daughter is facing these things when, when everybody else seems to have it so easy. It happens when people in our lives that we love pass away much too young. It happens when we do the right things for the right reasons and people nevertheless reward us with skepticism, criticism, or abandonment. It happens all the time. What we face in this world is, is real. And the unfairness of this world really stings. The injustice that we face in this world really hurts. But as Christians... We have reason to hope and not lose heart because we serve a God who understands what we're facing. God the Son left heaven to endure the suffering and the injustice and the hostility and the unfairness of this world. He came to stand in our place. So when we face a world that doesn't make sense, we've got to understand that we serve a God who can identify with us in our deepest pain. But sometimes we fall into the trap of believing, don't we church, that God owes us a pain-free existence, a smooth path from here into eternity, but we serve a crucified and risen Savior. And in this world, we are called to deny ourselves and take up our cross, and we understand that oftentimes things don't go as we would like or expect, especially when we do the right things for the right reasons. The truth is, in this life, we, we want to be rewarded for doing what is right, and yet, oftentimes, it doesn't work out that way. And yet, what this passage shows us is God is nevertheless still in charge and still working. In Mordecai's case, God is still working behind the scenes. In verse 21 of the text we just read, he just so happens to be in the right place at the right time to learn that Big Than and Teresh were going to lay hands on the king. Now, lay hands in the Bible can mean one of two things. You can set apart deacons 
for special service. You can set apart pastors for special service by laying hands on them and commissioning them. Or you can lay hands on somebody and kill them. When we lay hands on deacons here at North Roanoke, we, we don't kill them. We, we, I promise. We, we commission them for special service in the life of the church. Now, I imagine if, if I overheard... Now, remember, Mordecai is the adoptive father of Esther, who's now queen of Persia, married to the king whose life is being threatened. I imagine if someone, if I overheard someone saying they were going to kill the man who had abducted my daughter, my first thought may not have been, I'm going to save this guy's life. But then, I realize my daughter is now his queen, and if they're going to kill the king, they might kill my daughter. So however Mordecai gets there, he ends up doing the right thing. He gives the information to Esther, who gives it to the king in Mordecai's name. So the king has every opportunity to know that Mordecai is the source who has saved his life. Mordecai and Esther are living out, Romans chapter 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 23, after an investigation, the, the men who were plotting against the king pay for their life, pay with their lives, and the king's life is, as a result, spared. We might expect, after Mordecai saves the king's life, that he would be honored in some way, right? I mean, dude just saved your life. The king clearly has a ton of wealth, has been demonstrated in the text. Hey, let's, let's give Mordecai some money, or let's give him a, a nice place in the king's palace. But instead, verse 1 of chapter 3, Mordecai goes off the scene, and some guy named Haman is promoted. And he gets to be the king's right-hand man. What in the world is going on? Mordecai saves my life. Haman is promoted after some time. So apparently the king has just forgotten the whole thing. And this is the reality in our fallen world, isn't it? The, the world forgets. The world doesn't pay attention. And we, and we should not, as believers, expect in this world that we're going to be congratulated or celebrated or thanked. Believers do what is right in God's eyes regardless of the rewards that we get now because it is God's record and God's reward that is what matters in the end and is what should motivate us right now. Jesus says in the last chapter of the good book, Revelation twenty-two twelve, look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. Is Jesus enough of a reward for you? To obey God and do the right thing when it seems better to do the wrong thing, as it very well may have in Mordecai's life, but to obey God and do the right thing, even when you want to do the wrong thing and get out of a jam, that is when you're really trusting that God is good and He is in control. Mordecai may have been particularly steamed when Haman was promoted, feeling no good deed goes unpunished, and that life is just a political game where things are never fair. And there's a sense in which he would be right. If you've read Ecclesiastes, it's a book about living under the sun. And everything that happens under the sun, if we're not considering God and God's son, is vanity. It's vanity of vanities. If you are living for the rewards and recognition of this world, you will end up sorely disappointed. But God's people understand there's a bigger reality at work and a God who stands 
over it all. And when we really get that deep down in our soul, when things don't go as we expect, when things don't happen that we would appreciate or that we would like, we don't abandon God. We don't abandon His call upon our lives in moments of perceived unfairness because God and God alone knows the end from the beginning. And He knows every slight and challenge and oversight along the way. And He uses those things in our lives to sanctify us, to set us apart more and more to be like Him, and then to place us where He wants us for His saving purposes. You may not get that promotion. You may not get that job in that new city. You may get moved to that new city because God wants to do something with your life there that otherwise people would be lost and undone and never encounter Christ. You see, there's a bigger picture going on here about getting people to know King Jesus and getting King Jesus to the world that is bigger than any slight or oversight that might happen in your life. But for now, while Mordecai's story seems as though it is finished, it's it's not done. Right now in verse 23, Mordecai gets, gets a mention. In the book of Chronicles, he doesn't get anything else. No cash payment, no promotion, not even a Chick-fil-A gift card. He gets a lousy mention in the book of the Chronicles of the Kingdom. I mean, who in the world is ever going to pay attention to that again? Who, who's going to pick up the book of Chronicles of the Kingdom and be like, man, Mordecai was a pretty special guy during the reign of King Ahasuerus. I mean, the only way that somebody's ever going to care about Mordecai again is if they just so happen to have a raging bout of insomnia and decide to pick up the book of Chronicles. Stay tuned for chapter 6. In a world of unfairness and injustice and malice, church, God is still in charge. It is not worldly fame or recognition, but the reward of knowing and pleasing God that stands the test of time and which keeps us going in a dark and dangerous world. Do you believe that, church? What, what bitterness in your life? What unfairness in your life? What oversight in your life? I can't believe I didn't get that job. I can't believe that this happened to my family What is going on in your life that is causing you to miss out on the goodness of God who even now is offering you Himself as as your reward? If we always got rewards right now for doing the right thing, would would we be doing the right thing because we believe God or just because we want the good reward? Does that make sense? we got to trust Him. For the people of God, Jesus himself is our reward. It is in his presence that we find pleasures forevermore. And we are happy to leave all other rewards and recognitions in his hands. Let's keep reading verse 2 of chapter 3. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now you remember earlier, he told Esther not to tell anyone that she was a Jew. And now, plot change, he's declaring that he's a, he's a child of God, that he's a, a Jew. Verse 5, 
And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. The second thing I want to show you from this story is that we must give honor where it is due. We must understand the risks of identifying with God's people. And in all of that, we must entrust ourselves to God's care. We've got to understand the risks of identifying with God's people as we give honor where honor is due, entrusting ourselves to God's care. There's a lot in these verses. In verse 2, we learn that all the king's servants are bowing down to Haman because the king commanded it. Now that's interesting because in the Persian culture, it was just natural to bow down to someone who was your superior. So Haman's been promoted, that's what the servants should do anyway, but the king has to command it, which suggests to me, we we can't know for sure, but it suggests to me that Haman wasn't a very popular guy. And the king's like, you guys need to bow down to him. I I know that we just promoted this knucklehead from he's been six weeks on the job to now he's your supervisor and none of you respect him because he doesn't have a clue what he's doing, but you're going to bow down to him. So that's probably what's going on. We're not sure. But what we do know in verse 2 is that Mordecai says, I'm not bowing down to him. In verse 4, he's pressured day after day after day. His disobedience is apparently not very obvious at first because Haman doesn't seem to notice. But when he does notice, it's chapter 1 of Esther all over again. He's acting just like the king. You remember when Vashti refused the king, he overreacted and he says, Let's send an edict out to all the women of the empire. Now, once more, a minor offense becomes an empire-wide concern. Haman now wants to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom. What is going on between the overreaction of the king and now Haman? It's, It's a picture of the world that the people of God live in. It's a reminder to us that we should not be surprised when the world doesn't feel like home. We should not be surprised when this world is anti the people of God. The world is dangerous and it's volatile because it's a place where people seek their own honor rather than the honor of God. It's a place where people overreact and they are governed by their emotions rather than truth, especially when they are dishonored because they want to be God rather than live their lives for the glory of the one true God. I wonder, church, if sometimes we see Haman in ourselves. Dowden asked this, how do we respond when people don't recognize our greatness? And then he asked this question, are we guilty of seeking our honor over God's honor? And then this one that that just pierced me to the heart this week as I studied, are we more offended When our honor is doubted, than when God's is. Examine your heart. Examine your social media feed. Examine what makes you the angriest. Are you more frustrated when your honor is doubted, or when God's is? And the reality is, North Roanoke Baptist Church, we're at a pivotal moment in the life of our church. God has allowed COVID for whatever reason, and I think one of those reasons is for churches to consider 
their identity. It's for churches to consider who they will honor. Will they honor every program that they've ever had and everything that they've ever done? Will that be their identity? Will their honor be about me and my and what I like and where I like to worship and how I like to worship? Or will we exist for the fame and the glory of the King of Kings? He's working all things out. And I'm just going to shoot you straight. North Roanoke is at a decision moment. Whose glory do we exist for? Do we want God to be glorified in Roanoke and among the nations and around the world? Or do we want to settle for business as usual as we've always done it and say the same thing is the same thing and it will always be the same? Because you know what churches do that do that? They glorify themselves and they slowly die and they don't make a difference in the kingdom of God for the glory of the name over every other name. And God has kept me awake night after night after night for weeks saying, it's time to go. It's time to be serious about the glory and the fame of Jesus no matter what. We are not going to be Haman. We are not going to hang on to every little thing that we've always loved when sometimes we've got to understand things have to be crucified for the glory of Christ. Taking up our cross is not just an individual effort, it's a corporate effort. And we are going to align ourselves with the mission of God. We are going to align our administrative structures. It's not just about the building that we have. We're going to structure ourselves the way the Bible structures the church in the New Testament so that we can be deployed for maximum impact in the kingdom of God. So help us, God. Or maybe not. Ultimately, that's up to the church. But that's where God is leading me to lead us. And I pray, so help us, God, that you will follow. Do we want to exist for the glory of God? As those who serve the king, who left heaven to be dis- disrespected, who left heaven to be disrespected and deliver us from death, we, church, have a supernatural capacity to live toward others as Christ lived toward us, to endure dishonor for the sake of those who do not yet know our King. And I pray that God would get Haman out of our hearts so that we could lead other people to the King of glory. But how do we understand Mordecai here? What's going on with Mordecai? Some commentators see him like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. You remember the golden statue was built and they're told to bow down and worship it and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say there's no way we're going to worship a golden statue. Is is that what's going on here or is Mordecai just being a bit petty and foolish? Because he's not being asked to worship Haman, he's just being asked to respect him, presumably. So other commentators see him as just crazy. Like after all the compromises that Mordecai has made, now he's refusing to give a simple bow to Haman? What, what is going on in the text is not easy to decide. Even in a fallen world, we are supposed to honor our governing officials, no matter whether they have an R or a D after their name. Writing at a time of intensifying persecution, the Apostle Peter says this, honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, and get this, honor the emperor. An emperor, by the way, who was persecuting the church. Children are to honor their parents. As believers, we are to outdo one another in showing 
honor. Husbands are to honor their wives, lest their prayers be hindered. Is there anyone in your life that you're not giving honor to whom it is due? But Mordecai does not show honor and puts not just himself and Esther at risk, but also every other Jew on the planet. When we choose to take a stand, church, we better make sure it's the right stand to make. And let me just say this. We live in a country that is not heading in a good direction with respect to religious liberty. If y'all haven't caught that memo, just thought I'd let you know. We're not, we're not on a good path with respect to religious liberty. And there will, there will likely come a day in our country when it's time to make that stand, but we need to keep our powder dry until it's really time to make the stand. When they come to our church and say, you can no longer preach the gospel, we'll have a reason to stand and to disobey. When they tell us you can no longer name the name of Jesus, that we can no longer broadcast the gospel in the same way that the humanist and the secularist and the atheist broadcast their anti-gospel, we will have to make a stand. But as long as we're able to proclaim the gospel and to share the good news of the hope of Christ, we will continue to give God our very best and to honor the king or to honor the emperor or to honor the government to the best of our ability and even when they begin to persecute us we will pray for them we will love them we will honor them but we will disobey when we are called not to preach the gospel so was mordecai taking a principled stand or was he picking a petty fight in truth the answer might actually be a bit of both Maybe at first it was, it was a bit petty. Maybe it was motivated by pride. But then as he sees who this Haman guy is, the right-hand man under a king who lets him do whatever he wants to do, maybe he realizes the whole kingdom is at risk. Maybe he realizes the people of God and their lives are at risk. In verse 1, Haman is called an Agagite. You say, what in the world is an Agagite? And that would be a great question. Most Biblical scholars think it's a reference back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 where we read about King Agag, king of the Amalekites, who were a people that were hostile to the Israelites as they escaped Egypt and went to the promised land. And they were hostile to them for no reason. So Moses says, hey, when y'all go into the promised land, I want you to eliminate the Amalekites. Take no prisoners. And Israel, under the reign of their first king, King Saul, gets the opportunity to do that in the book of Samuel. And interestingly enough, King Saul, the first king of Israel, is a distant relative of Mordecai. They have a shared common ancestor in the the person named Kish, named back in chapter 2, verse 5. So Mordecai sees Haman as an Agagite, And King Agag and the Amalekites opposed King Saul, his distant relative, long time before. Are you all with me? All right. So so there's like a family squabble that's in the background, potentially. And when, when... God delivers the Amalekites into the hands of Saul. Saul is, just, is supposed to kill the king. And he's supposed to take none of their possessions for himself. So guess what King Saul did? He didn't kill the king, and he took the possessions for himself. Samuel finds out about it, and he's not a happy guy. So in the back of Mordecai's mind is this old family feud where My distant ancestor didn't take care of business. Well, I'm going to take care of business. I'm going to do what needs 
to be done. Now, we don't know if he's a literal descendant of the Amalekites or of Agag because Samuel took care of business. The prophet Samuel, you remember what he did? He hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. He's a little upset. And then we read later in Chronicles chapter 4 that the remnant of the Amalekites had been struck down. So biologically, Agag and the Amalekites seem to be long gone. And yet Agag represents to Mordecai a category of people that symbolized the disobedience of King Saul and of the Israelites to not do what God asked them to do in God's way and in God's time. So he's like, well, I'll do it. And the reality is, church, God's people are surrounded by worldly powers who enjoy making life miserable for the people of God. There are people in human governments around the world that exist to oppose the people of God. Mordecai's problem is not that he didn't get the promotion. His problem is the one who was promoted and what he represents. Haman would gladly use his position to eradicate the people of God. So Mordecai goes ahead and gives him a reason to do so. Previously, Mordecai had calculated that it was best to conceal his identity and compromise his convictions to protect himself and Esther. Now... He either can't stomach humbling himself before this racist Haman, or he actually sees a threat to the people of God and believes he's making a principled stand. Either way, he's tested day after day. Do you see it in verse 4? Day after day, he's tested to deny his identity and just assimilate with the people of God. But instead, he keeps saying, I'm not going to bow, and the reason I'm not going to bow is because I'm a Jew. And the reality is the church the reality is church that the world will test you as well. Do you belong to Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Are you really going to make that stand for Christ in your middle school or your high school? Are you really going to make that stand for Christ in your workplace? Are you really going to risk your life for the glory of God rather than just go along to get along with the world and his stand ends up putting all Jews at risk? In a moment, their lives and God's promise to send His Son are placed in jeopardy. But we know we serve a God who is over the powers of this world. We know that we are in a world that we don't find our identity or our protection or our hope in. Instead, we find it in the King of glory. When Mordecai denies his identity, what happens? Esther is captured. Now that he claims his identity, what happens? All the Jews are put at risk. And that's the point. We can't keep score of how God is doing or how God's people are doing based on what we see or experience in any given moment. Oh, the church declined a little bit. The church went up a little bit. Well, God must be moving because the church increased in attendance. God must not be moving because the church decreased in attendance. That's not how we keep score. He tried it both ways. He denied his identity and his daughter's captured. Now he embraces his identity and the whole people of God are put at risk. If we keep score based on what we see, we're missing on the king of glory who is in control in all circumstances and all times. So how do we keep score? We keep score by faithfulness. We be faithful to God no matter what our eyes See, God keeps His promises to us in Christ, which means that we can give honor where honor is due, 
And it means we can risk our lives by disclosing who we are when the situation requires it. Because it is God, not us, who causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him. To those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 28. The last thing I want to share with you comes from verses 7 through 15. Would you continue reading in the text with me? In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink like it was, it was done. Signed, sealed, and delivered. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I want you to see out of these remaining verses in chapter 3 that we must understand that God is not only sovereign over slights, Mordecai was slighted. He's not only sovereign when we make a stand for him. He's also sovereign over chances and all other circumstances. God is sovereign over chances and all other circumstances. In the last half of chapter 3, we learn God is sovereign over the details, even the chance happenings that would impact His promises that are on the way through His Son. Did you know when you decide on genocide that the first thing you do apparently is pick a day. So we're going to wipe out all the juice. Well, the first thing we got to do is we got to figure out what time we're going to do that. So what do they do? They cast lots or purr, something a bit like our modern day dice. And they go through the calendar and cast the dice to see which month the gods or fate would select. And wouldn't you know it that as they cast die in the first month of the year, that it's not until the 12th month of the year that the per select the month. And so, it just so happens, right, that 
that all this time that it will be needed for God's plan to work out is given. So they think that they have settled their decree of death in the cosmos with the casting of the lots. But Proverbs 16.33 tells us the lot is cast into the lap. But, every, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So 12 months is a long time, right? It's, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of lead time to allow for God's great reversal to come about. God is sovereign over even the chances of life. And He is sovereign over concealed plans. Haman is, is not exactly forthcoming about who he wants to destroy, is he? In verse 8, he only calls them a certain people. He goes on to say they're scattered throughout the kingdom. They don't keep the king's laws, and it's not profitable for the king to tolerate these people. To Haman, they have commanded, excuse me, they've committed the ultimate sin of not fitting in with society. Did you know the world doesn't like it when you honor Jesus rather than honor the world? When you're a little bit weird, when you don't just go along with the crowd, when you don't do everything you can to fit in, when you're one of those, I don't know if we still use this term, but it used to be Jesus freak. The freakier freakier you are for Jesus, the more of a target you are to the world. But we're called to stand out in this world, to be Jesus freaks. It's okay. In fact, it's, it's it's normal. The normal Christian life is the crazy Christian life. Let me tell you what's not normal. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'll go to church occasionally. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really care about being involved with other Christians. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I have no desire to share the gospel with my coworker or with my family. That's not the normal Christian life. In fact, the Bible would ask us, is that even the Christian life at all? The normal Christian life is a radical life. It's a different existence from what the world portrays as normal. To Haman, these people have to go because they don't blend in with the kingdom. Which is all a bit ironic, isn't it? Because it's Jews who have so far saved the king. He says the Jews are against you. They're a risk to you. But his wife is a Jew, and Mordecai and his wife have just saved his life, but he doesn't know that, and apparently he doesn't even care enough to ask good questions. Like, now, who do you want to kill exactly? Never asked it. And maybe to distract the king from asking a good question, in verse 9, Haman offers a huge bribe of cash, 10,000 talents of silver, which would have been the equivalent of a half to two-thirds of the annual tax revenue for the empire. In other words, Haman was either Scrooge McDuck or he was exaggerating. It might have been exaggerated. We, we don't know whether he had 10,000 talents of silver or not. Regardless, what we see is a king who is easily persuaded when it comes to messing around with the people of God. He's, he's a bit like Pilate washing his hands of the guilt of Jesus' blood before handing him over to be crucified. He takes off his signet ring and he says, you do with them what you wish. Then in verse 11, King Ahasuerus either says, don't worry about the money, or you have the money. We're not sure what he's exactly saying. The Hebrew text there is unclear. But now the king who asks no question hands over the authority to slaughter his wife and her adoptive father and any hope for God to keep his promise to send a promised son through his 
people. It seems like it's over. It seems like it's done. Then in the remaining verses, Haman and the scribes get to work. In verse 12, they write an edict. Do you see it? For all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. The edict goes everywhere and it targets every Jew on the planet. Verse 13, all Jews, young and old, women and children, to be not just destroyed, but destroyed and killed and annihilated. If you didn't know what destroy meant, it means to kill them. If you don't know what kill and destroy meant, annihilate them. Wipe them off the face of the planet. And that's what the world wants to do with the promises of God. Because the world wants your allegiance. They don't want a people who are allegiant, whose sworn allegiance is to a king who stands over the powers of this world. They want to wipe them out. And in verse 14, all the people of the empire are supposed to be ready for that day. The day that the plan and the promises and the people of God are eradicated forever. And the city of Susa is understandably thrown into confusion because the edict began in Susa. So they would have known immediately. And they had to be thinking, what in the world is going on? Why would we kill an entire race of people? Most, most people didn't have it out for the Jews. And they're like, if that can happen to them, maybe that can happen to me. And it's an irrevocable law. What is going on? And the king and Haman As the city is confused, sit down to celebrate and await the day that the plan of God is canceled forever. But church, here's what you need to know. God is over the plans of the world. Worldly powers don't appreciate the one that they are up against. We serve the Lord God Almighty. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one who can, if necessary, move heaven and earth to keep his promises. Or more often, he works in the unseen circumstances and details of our lives. In the casting of the purr or the dice, the Lord was there. In the concealed plans of Haman, the Lord was there. In the cash bribes of Haman, the Lord was still there. And if we read with the history of God's people in mind, I want you to hang with me just for a second. I want to show you something amazing in verse 12. If we read with the history of God's people in mind, we notice that the edict of destruction is prepared. Look at verse 12. On the 13th day of the first month. Why would we care about that? The 13th day of the first month is just one day before the people of God would be celebrating Passover. So I want you to think about this. On the day that God's people are preparing to celebrate God's deliverance from slavery out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea, on the day they're called to look back to what God has done before them, they live in a world where their deaths have been decreed. They had a decision to make. And we also have a decision to make. Do we believe the Lord God Almighty In the middle of our circumstances when they don't make sense? Or do we believe our circumstances? Would they hear the decree of death? And would they despair? Or would they remember the Lord God Almighty who had passed over the firstborn sons of Israel with the blood of a lamb and trust that one day He would send His only begotten Son through the Jewish 
people to put an end to animal sacrifices once for all, to be raised up on the third day and give us life everlasting. Like the Jews throughout the empire, we have a moment of deliverance that we can look back to in a world that is broken and distorted and doesn't make sense. We look back to the cross of Calvary. And on Easter Sunday, we look to the fact that the tomb could not hold him. He has been raised from the dead. We remember that Jesus said he was going to do it and that because he would do it, if we will trust in him, even the gates of hell would not prevail against his church We look back to the cross, we look forward to His coming, and we say and affirm when the world seems to be winning, and its plans and its policies and its chance decisions are set against us and God's mission, we believe in our resurrected King, we know He's coming again, and we don't quit because God is sovereign over even the chances and the coincidences and the concealed information and the cash bribes of this world. Haman thought He had won. The king thought it was over. And they sat back and partied. But here was the problem with their plan. Haman thought he needed the king's permission to kill the people of God. But he needed not just the king's permission. He needed the permission of the king of kings. And he was having none of it. And here's the amazing irony of it all, church. Unlike Haman or Hazarus. The true king, the king of kings, had every right to be angry with us. Our sinful rebellion against him brought an irrevocable decree of death, but the Lord did not leave us to die. Instead, he sent his son to take our place. It was not our death, but Jesus' death that was secured with the bribe price of silver. So that so that in So that in his death, we could have a share in his resurrected life. One pastor said it this way. God said, in effect, about his son, Satan, you destroy and kill and annihilate Jesus rather than my people. For sin must be paid for. You plunder his few remaining goods and distribute them among those who put him to death. You torture him. You mock him. You execute him on a cross. But as for my people, you will not touch them. The world thought it could destroy God and His promises and His people and His promised Son, but God gets the final word. Those this morning who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus will live. While the world sits back and drinks and thinks that it's winning, we do not fear our fear because while the world thinks they've fixed the day, it's the day that God has fixed that truly matters. In verse 14, they said, the day is fixed. It's, it's determined. God's people are going to be destroyed. But in Acts 17, 31, we learn about a different day that has been fixed. And it's been fixed by God. God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. That's the living Lord Jesus Christ. And of this, He has given assurance. How? By raising Him from the dead. We serve a king who sent his son to die in our place, to be raised on the third day, and all who trust in him will live. And when he comes back is the day of judgment, and that day has been fixed. So we have a far better decree to publish than that that was published by the Persian Empire. The decree that we publish in every language and in every land is this. Death could not hold the king of kings. If you will trust in him, It will not hold you either. The true king is the Lord 
of slights and stands and chances. Do you know him? Let's pray together. God in heaven, we give you praise for your presence among us today. And we ask God that if there's anyone in this room or listening online who who does not have confidence even in the face of death, even in the face of, of being slighted, even in the face of the, the chances and circumstances of this world, God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would give them liberty to run to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to be saved and to have hope and assurance of life everlasting through him. God, I pray you'd work in this room and in the lives of those who are listening. And for those who are believers, God, we thank you for the reminder that we can look back to the cross as we look ahead to the coming of Christ our King and we can have confidence in a broken and dark world that seems so far from God. We give you praise for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.